Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Danny Grant is an analyst at Union Square Ventures, where she focuses primarily on blockchain companies. Before USV, Danny was part of the product strategy team at Cloudflare. In our episode today, we talk about why distributed compute is important, how users and developers will interact with crypto, learnings that Danny's carried over from her Cloudflare days to help her better evaluate crypto trends, plus the latest project she's been hacking away on. Hey, Danny, welcome to the show. Hey, Suna. So happy to have you. Uh, we were going back and forth about what would be the best way to introduce you, and you had jokingly said that you'd rescue me from the elevator, and we were... I thought it was a funny joke, but I actually think it's a great way to introduce like who you are as a person. It gives really good insights into your personality and the type of person you are. So we're going to run with that. The The story of how Danny saved me from the elevator is going to be a great segue. So um, I remember I was in New York a, a couple months back and we were invited to the same event and I showed up. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like an incredibly narrow building. The the hallway looks really weird. I don't think this doesn't really strike me as an event venue. I was like, but maybe if I go up a few floors, it's different. You know, it's like some New York buildings are like that. So I remember going walking in. I remember hitting like floor three or something, and I don't feel any. The elevator doesn't move. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. It's pretty late at night. I'm like, whatever. I'll just open open the elevator door and then just maybe it's like the wrong building. And I remember trying to open it and it doesn't open and it's also not moving. So it takes me a few seconds. I'm like, oh, okay. I think I'm stuck here. (laughs) And so, you know, like when you're in a really bad situation, like all of a sudden you have heightened awareness and you start becoming perceptive of things you hadn't before. So I looked at my phone and I realized I was only at like 15% battery or like 10% battery. I was like, oh, wonderful. I'm stuck in this elevator in a very creepy building. It's incredibly small. And um, I don't think that many people knew I was going. So I remember thinking like, who do I know at the event that is incredibly responsive? Um, and I could like allocate this like 10% battery to I was like, oh, Danny. So I, you've always like responded within 30 seconds. So I remember texting you and then you FaceTime me. I was like, okay, I cannot do FaceTime. I'm only at 10% battery. Sorry, let's just keep this to text. And and then I told you my situation. And then you really quickly found out that I was in the shipping side of the building where like only shipments come in through that elevator. <laughs> and you get there. And I remember just, I mean, I was incredibly nervous. I was like, I don't like people are probably going to if it's a shipping elevator people only come here like what once or twice a week like I'm probably not going to see anyone for a really long time and you get there and uh, you're like all right well the person that usually manages this building isn't here and is gone for the weekend so you found um, somebody who could like get a support and like uh, pretty much like free me from the elevator and I remember like the entire time I was I'm just sitting there in silence. You're like, all right, let's play music. Let's do word puzzles. Let's do word riddles. And like kept me entertained and like talked me through it and made sure I was calm the entire time. 
And then I got out of there pretty fast. Like now I think about it, like they only came in and unlocked it. But um, afterwards you're like, Hey, I know your battery percentage is low. Do you want me to get you an Uber home? And like, you just, I don't know. I think the things that I gathered from that, I was like, this was so classic Danny, like incredibly responsive, uh, has a plan of action, like is very thoughtful throughout the process and then kind of like wraps up and ties up loose ends. And I just, um, I think that's like the perfect way to introduce you. So Danny, today on the show, I don't think it's a stretch to say save my life. <laughs> I'd probably still be in an elevator somewhere. And uh, and I think when you're not rescuing people from elevators, uh, you are diligencing and sourcing deals at USV. So I was curious if you wanted to give a little bit about your background and um, what you're up to today. Amazing. Um, so I'm an analyst at USV. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at education um, and some time looking at crypto. Um, and, and I come from protocol world. So I spent three and a half years at Cloudflare working on like DNS and IPv6 and building TCP load balancers. Um, and I love I love the protocol world because it's like hopeful people. They're all about building a connected world. They're about building the future. Like what's possible if we do this? What will other people do on top of what we're doing? And so um, coming to USV, I just I had to work with crypto it's the same. Totally. And I, I know that before you um, entered USB, you were actually at Cloudflare before. I was curious, like what types of learnings have you brought over from the Cloudflare world to USB and specifically with the crypto projects you guys are looking at and sourcing? So Cloudflare is a really amazing company. Um, and and one, of, one of the things that's so fun about working there is, is people come to work um, with, with this idea that, that they're like on a mission to make the internet safer. Like this will enable all these people to do more interesting things on the internet because it will just in the background be a safer place. So I spent a lot of time at Cloudflare working with um, IoT manufacturers, people who make IoT devices, and and like working with them on device security. And, and there's something really really interesting here that applies to crypto. So one one of the reasons why IoT is so insecure is because there's a huge challenge in patching devices. So if there is software running on a device that has a security flaw. Um, the team wants to write a patch and patch that device. But usually two, one of two things happen. So one is the team writes a patch, but they're too afraid to push it out because they're really afraid to break a million devices at once. And then the second thing that happens is the team writes a patch, they push it out, but the end users won't like install that patch. And and it's for IoT, you have to sound familiar. <laughs> These problems sound familiar. <laughs> Great. Um, and, and so this is kind of exactly what happens in crypto, right? So you write a smart contract, you push it out, and then you can't really patch it. And what, what's crazy here is, is, I mean, it's not like smart toasters, it's people's money. And so it's really, really important to get security right. Um, so they're kind of like, um, like so security is, is really interesting in this space. There are kind of like four approaches that I've seen. So the first one is... Uh, you write libraries and standard interfaces that other people adopt. So this is like Zeppelin or like ERC-223, where the idea is we're going to spend all this time making sure that this interface is super locked down, super secure, and then people will just use that interface. They don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. They just use secure code to begin with. And then the second type, like the second approach to smart contract security is like static code analysis, like testing suites. So this is like Rattle or Vandal. Um, and then the third is like humans are going to audit this. It's not going to be machines that just do like static code analysis. Humans are going to look at this. And so there are like services that do the audits. And then there are bounty networks for people um, to like be paid to do audits. 
So that's like Quantstamp and Solidified and Hacken. And then the fourth is, okay, we're just going to build a base chain where the core benefit of this chain is a more secure smart contract language. So this is like Kadena or Agoric. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then a fifth approach that we haven't seen, but would be very interesting is like a language or a compiler that lets developers kind of write code once and then can be compiled and pushed to all chains um, that, that also does some, some of this testing. So you write once and it's hopefully secure everywhere. Absolutely. I think DX uh, developer experience is like a long way to go. Um, I mean, I remember I wrote a piece recently about just DX versus UX. I got so much pushback because I said, I think we should start prioritizing developer experience more because whatever efforts we're putting towards UX could be doubled or tripled if people had a better way of compiling, uh, debugging, and you know, kind of getting this stuff out there. But um, yeah, I completely agree. I think those are four camps that carry over from the security and your work with like uh, what you guys are doing in IoT and um, what's going on in crypto. Outside of like the projects you listed, what types of projects are you uh, thinking about right now or like what excites you most? Okay, so so the other question uh, is like, what's going to happen? What's going to work in the next you know five years? Like really short time span. Um, so we get all these pitches for these crypto companies, and they're anywhere from like you know real estate plus crypto, TaskRabbit plus crypto, you know music streaming plus crypto, social networks plus crypto. And there's a question of like, okay, well, which one of these are going to work now? Um, and and so my belief here is that uh, it's really really hard to compete with the web. And so the best way to compete here is actually to not compete and to offer something that's net new, that you can't get on the web. You have to use something built on crypto to get that. And there are kind of like two ways to be a new thing. Like one way is to be just like a totally new experience that was not possible um, on the web. And the second is like to be a, to like to provide an experience that's available on the web, but provide it for people who didn't have access to it on the web. And so I think the things that are going to work first are going to be in those categories, right? So distributed compute is a great example of something that was not possible on the web or universal basic income, something that was not possible like just on the web. You need, you need crypto to do it. And then and what were some of the hangups or why wasn't it possible on the web as is for listeners? So before, before crypto, like before uh, networks that are distributed and run autonomously, there was no way to build a developer infrastructure platform that could run seemingly forever. And there was always mm -hmm. going to be a company that was in control of making changes to that, to that hosted platform. Um, and so never before could a developer trust that when they deploy code, nothing will change. The rules won't change on them. The platform won't go down. Uh, and, and, and like distributed networks, um, crypto. Is, is the first time that that's possible and that, that's huge mm -hmm. new. And, and one of the new things that it enables is like, it, there are some things that can't really be made software yet because they need to run forever to work. So like some medical devices, can you imagine if a medical, like if a company pushed out software to regulate your pacemaker, but then the company went out of business or like their AWS credits ran out, like that, right. that would be disastrous. And so you need uh, platforms where software can run seamlessly like forever. Um, and, and crypto really enables that. That is like net new. Absolutely. So distributed compute, I think, is an incredibly um, important use case, one that you have actually written about. And in general, uh, for our listeners, please check out Danny's, all of Danny's blog posts on USB. They all do incredibly well. And I think you're just um, a very deep, and I also think like uh, you, you deep thinker, but you also provide a fresh perspective um, that people don't usually hear. And I think that, you know, if you're looking to diversify, if you're looking for 
the macro picture, like how does this fit in in the larger context of things? I highly recommend Danny's post. So one you had, uh, I think in the summer, was about a, a landscape overview of the distributed compute space. And you talked about how uh, people are trying different approaches to growing the network, how they're approaching isolating tasks from host machines, and narrow versus broad use cases. I'm curious if, since you've read, uh, since you've written that post, if anything has changed um, from the summer to till now. I think, and, and also what stayed the same. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I totally got wrong um, when I first looked at this is I thought the core innovation here was about price. Like I thought wow, like when, when compute just gets cheaper and cheaper, there's more and more supply of it and you don't have to pay for like a data center or um, like directly pay for electricity and space. Uh, just people will uh, take advantage of that. There'll be more innovation in the world because compute is cheaper. And I was super mm-hmm. excited about this. And every project I talked to, I like, you know, quiz them on, you know, how much is this going to cost someone to run in their home for a month? And how much electricity does this use? And what's what's the like average price of electricity in, in like the US or Canada, like just was really <laughs> obsessed with this. So I thought, I really thought like, it's really hard to compete against AWS unless you're cheaper. Um, but mm-hmm. the more I spend, like the more time I spend on the space, the more I realize just how flawed that is, where the core innovation here isn't about price. Like, like sure, that's important. But the key thing that just was never possible before it's a platform that runs forever that you feel, you as a developer, feel in control of. Um, and, so, and so the way you compete against AWS and Google is uh, you make your governance rules really, really clear. And uh, you promise to be more and more decentralized over time. And you make it very clear who can make changes and how those changes happen. Um, and, you may, and you open source things and you put them on chain. Absolutely. I like that you said decentralized over time as opposed to decentralized out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of projects run into this problem where they're trying to do two things, two incredibly hard things at once. I think one in and of itself, getting an app or getting a project launched that has good UX, that you know has uptime, that's you know close as close as you can get to like 100, um, and that you know and is focusing on security is tough in and of itself. And then to add on top of that, like being completely decentralized and having cemented your governance rules from the beginning and knowing that's that's going to work and that's going to be it and it's going to be completely decentralized from the get-go i think is um unrealistic so i like i like the uh, decentralized over time point and also i think even more so than competing against aws and google i mean like if we think about the gatekeepers like like percentage of fees that apple takes for instance like when you want to upload a game or like the types of rules that you have to comply with um at different app stores i think is also we're seeing people beginning to revolt. And I think it's just going to become a more magnified problem over time. Absolutely. One of the big distinctions here is like, yeah, developers are revolt. Like developers don't like that. Like they don't like gatekeepers. They don't like the rules, but users almost don't care. Right. Because the users care about convenience and they care about the brand experience and they care about getting like their promise. And they almost don't care what happens under the hood generally. Right. Like, um, users won't play more Fortnite if Fortnite is running on a, on a blockchain. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, and so one of the tough things is uh, in the web uh, there's, there's so much power in having access to users. Um, Like users are the scarce thing. And so if you're a platform that has users, uh, other, other like service providers will bend to your will. 
um, to like uh, get access to those users. And so you can kind of define the rules, right? Like the way that Facebook defines the rules for content creators and Facebook defines the rules or used to define the rules for like game like makers, like Zynga. Um, and, and so, uh, so yeah, so like developers don't like Apple, but like users do. And so developers will play by Apple's rules. Absolutely. Yeah. Until, until it changes. I mean, we always hear like control the narrative and you control everything, but I think it's, you really have to have, you, you really have to have a stronghold on like who's believing the narrative and that's what changes. I mean, you can put whatever narratives you want out there, but if not enough people believe it, then um, no one feels external pressure to change. And I absolutely agree during, uh, about bending to the actual will. So what are some things you foresee like for both on the user end and developer um, end, how do you see them interacting with crypto in five years out versus like 50 years out? So it's interesting. So one of the things that we've talked about is like crypto is like for the developer. Like crypto makes so much sense for developers. Developers care about open. They care about control. They understand how much time and like effort and emotion they're investing in their projects and, and they want to build on open systems, right? So, so crypto is about developers before it's about users. Um, because those things you kind of get out of the gate, while user experiences you kind of have to build on top. And so there's a question of what that means. And I think, like, it's very possible that uh, developers will be building on, like, services running on chains, and the users have no idea, right? So, like, the same way that you have no idea if, like, Venmo uses AWS or Google, or if, like, you know, something totally else, uh, you won't know if, like, some, like, financial service you use is running its backend services on, on a chain or on a centralized cloud. Uh, and, and maybe what that even means is that developers for a long time will just obfuscate all the tokens and wallets and all the crypto stuff from users, where users will be using like apps that are hosted on chains, but without knowing. Like they'll just be like, they'll have a username and email to sign up and they'll pay with a credit card just like they do for services today. And what they won't know is that in the background, like all the compute is happening on chain. You know, I've always wondered, and this has like been an interesting like thought exercise where like similar to how um, organic foods or like GMOs or whatever, we no one really cared until there were actual labels <laughs> and people started realizing the effects of, you know, uh, eating like contaminated or like a pesticide infested type of food. So I've always wondered, like, will there be kind of like an organic label equivalent? Like, is there is there something we can draw from like the organic food? revolution like people actually caring about that versus like oh you're still on, like on a centralized server like do you know what the second or third order like consequences are to that so i've always i've always thought like is is could a user care but we'd have to you know kind of have a, a narrative shift where you one label and make it obvious that you know this is a user of like a decentralized product <laughs> and then to just really drive home the the consequences like like really make everyone aware of like what they are giving up in exchange for this convenience, which I, I think we're seeing more of, but it's gonna be interesting to see it play out. One of like the great example, like this is like Intel inside, right? And, and one of the hard things with crypto is to make users understand that this is a thing that they should want is that the word crypto and the word blockchain, the word decentralized are super, super intimidating. Like they require a level of technical knowledge that is like just uh, crazy to expect um, like, you know, people have never, like, this is not part of the public education system, how, or like Hollywood or, or mass culture, like, how, how would people have this? Um, and, and so I, I think a really good example is uh, the push towards, um, like, TLS, the push towards HTTPS, where um, all Chrome had to do was, all they had to do, uh, over many years of hard work, they had to put a green lock in the browser. And then 
And that indicated safety, which is so human. Everyone understands that. And so um, it will be up to people who have like end user distribution um, to help users make educated decisions about their usage, right? So it will be up to like, I don't know, um, like Telegram and um, whatever else people use. Facebook. <laughs> Um, like on, on a human level, like uh, what what different technologies mean for them? Absolutely. Um, and one of the like, <laughs> and uh, a good comparison here, I think, is like cars, right? Where there are many humans on the earth that drive cars and maybe own cars, uh, and yet like very few humans on the earth who know how a car works. And the distributors of cars have helped us understand enough about like just the core important things that we should be choosing between um, like ha- has this car passed like a safety like test or an emissions test or like important things to help us make like wise decisions about things that we do not understand. And I think crypto and just technology in general falls under that bucket. Oh, I love that analogy. Absolutely. Kind of distilling it into digestible. Like here, you don't need to know everything, but here are the core things that you should probably be choosing between and we'll leave that decision in your hands. Do you think, so, so you don't, you're not, you don't subscribe to like the entire, like futures all decentralized where like people will have centralized or decentralized options and they get to opt between two. Like, how do you think about that? So, so what's very interesting, I think, is that as long as all the like data um, underlying services is open um, in these like open protocols that are that interoperate, you almost don't need the services on top to be decentralized, right? So like a good example here um, is in the early days of Twitter, uh, there were like a million Twitter clients. That's enough. There were probably like 40, but, but like close. <laughs> right. Because the idea is because like as long as tweets or like Twitter as a, as a, protocol or a firehose is open, you could build whatever interfaces you want on top and users can kind of switch between them. And if one Twitter client like became evil, you could just go and switch to something else. And and mm. so Twitter's an example, we have that in many things, right? So um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, there are just, there are thousands of podcast players to choose from. And um, okay, maybe not thousands, but like definitely hundreds. Because RSS is just this open data protocol um, all podcast players are these like centralized services that sit on top of this open data protocol and you can pretty freely switch between them, right? If, if your podcast player becomes evil, uh, you, you can leave. And, and so we see this already with crypto where there are a lot of exchanges because they all have access to the same underlying like data essentially. And especially with like zero X and shared order books, uh, that is like even more true. And so there's almost no loyalty to like exchanges because they're these centralized services that sit on top of open data. And so it's possible that we enter a world in which the the data is open and shared, but the services on top are totally centralized um, and, 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 and users can leave them freely um, and have more control. So it's it's a world that we want, um, but not completely decentralized. It's kind of like is reminiscent of, and I'm curious to hear your take on this like phrase where uh, people are like, oh, well, the internet was originally decentralized. There were a lot of protocols competing, but then it became centralized, not because of technological superiority, but purely because of economic, just the economics of the models we use today just made more sense and it was easier to capture value. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, like, oh, well, we're returning to the original internet days or what the original vision was for the internet um, versus, oh, it was always centralized from the get-go. So it's, it, seems, it seems weird that uh, to talk about the internet as something that used to be decentralized, right? Because 
like in early days of the web, the way you accessed it was like a handful of portals, right? Like you started with AOL, you started with Prodigy, and they were like the ultimate gatekeeper. They were like your door to the internet. They were they were the gate. Um, and so that's pretty much as centralized as you get, right? Mm-hmm. I guess like you could have been on Usernet, but it was really tough. Like they had, uh, I mean, the whole burgeoning of the meme, like the eternal September was because every time, you know, they saw uh, an influx of users on Usernet was because it was like an incoming freshman class mm-hmm. that had access to AOL and then they were able to, or like, or had access to be, to be able to use it. And then once AOL provided access, it was like an eternal September and they just had a bunch of people coming in and it, the graph just moved up and to the right for, for actual users. But yes, um, it was incredibly tough to access it. So yeah, you had AOL and like maybe like a couple others and that was incredibly centralized. Right. But there is something to be said about, there's like an, some sort of effect on the internet, right? Like some may call it aggregation theory, but it's just like it's an effect. Um, <laughs> where, <laughs> where I, because I, where, where like, Platforms that have a lot access to a lot of users can continue to monetize those users and offer more and more services to those users, which in effect brings in more users. Um, and so it's like rich get richer version of um, the internet. And, uh, and 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 it's interesting, right? Because that's uh, like the scarce resource on the internet is is users, right? Um, I because and, and and so there's a question of like, well, what will be the scarce resource in this like Web three world? Um, wow. So there's there's an argument to be made that maybe it's hash rate, right? Like the more hash rate you have on a network, um, the more secure that network is. And uh, hash rate is like expensive to acquire because like just the whole process of getting, you know, miners like, um, convince people to buy thousand dollar mining rigs for your network and mine your network is is like, you know, that's an expensive process, just like it's an expensive process to get users today. And, and so there's a lot of speculation of like which chains will developers gravitate to. And, and it's possible to say, well, if the scarce resource is hash rate, then maybe developers gravitate to the chain that has the most access to hash rate, right? They'll pay a premium in token price just to get access to that scarce thing. Um, so, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. So I was curious, so right now you're on the investing side of the table, but if you were building a company today, what would it be? Oh, um, I guess we just say this is like, do you have a request for a product? Right, right. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to make a request for a product. Um, so read Encyclopedia Brown when you were a little. You as a kid, you read, you read the, the mystery. And uh, you're like presented some suspects in narrative form. Like, you know, first Encyclopedia Brown investigated this and this is what he learned. And then you get to figure out what is the solution to the mystery. And the answers are in the back of the book. And I, so it's like Sherlock, right? But instead of mm-hmm. giving answers it lets you it gives you space to figure it out and I think mm-hmm. just build this for adults so, so that's like my my request for product selfishly but, <laughs> <laughs> but so but what should you build now in crypto right so that that's a more interesting question so um so what, one of the interesting properties of crypto is that it's uh you know it, it's exciting for developers first um and uh and a lot of developers want to be able to interact with this thing but don't really want to do all the work of converting fiat to tokens and um, like figuring out how to host a node uh, and you know uh, having their own index of their smart contract. Like there, there's like a big leap for developers to do the thing that they want to do, and and so there's a big opportunity to be the gateway between like Web two development stack and this like Web three networked world. Um, and so there are like a few different parts of that, right? Like one is um, 
being able to interact with developer services and paying with tokens. And there's like just the token to token and fiat to token exchange. And then there's kind of like an identity wallets piece. And then there's like read and write to chains, right? So like uh, read like read like the graph, write like Infura. And mm. so, uh, there seems to be this big opportunity to, to own that developer experience and be kind of the standard. So if, if you, uh, I was searching on GitHub yesterday, there are like 37,000 um, uh, projects that have incorporated Infura that are hosted on GitHub. Um, and uh, it seems like a lot. It seems like, oh, well, they've won 37,000, but, it, but it's like very small in the grand scheme of things. GitHub has 28 million developers on it. Um, and, and so it feels like there's still an opportunity for someone to really, really own that. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. And I guess on the topic of like different like projects, like opportunities we see, um, I think that we start seeing different companies pop up when a new narrative switch comes up, especially within the Ethereum community. And we've seen, and that's not to say that Bitcoin itself hasn't, you know, gone through narrative changes as well. I mean, we can read Nick Carter's like, visions of Bitcoin, but on the ETH side, we've seen like, uh, you know, TCRs, we've seen the TCR wave, um, NFTs were the future at one point, um, fundraising via tokens or tokens eating the VC world, but you know, USB still in existence. And <laughs> so it's curious um, if you think we, we've, we've, you know, kind of sorted through a lot of these and now um, it seems like DeFi is the the big narrative that we're writing and seeing what sticks there. Um, I'm curious if you think about these past narratives and think some of them still have a shot and we haven't, you know, tried, we haven't truly uh, given them enough time to develop these companies and see how they interact like in the future versus like is DeFi the future of Ethereum and this is where it's all headed. So, so the question is, we've, we've moved from excitement about tokens to excitement about and like tokens and TCRs to excitement mm-hmm. about um, uh, like DeFi. And, and is, is that wrong to do so? And, and like, did, did and not, not wrong to do so, but do you find that to be like the more promising narrative here? Or do you think that these other types of tokens, like via NFTs or like using tokens as a fundraising mechanism, et cetera, like, are they still, do they have some kind of uh, viability that we just, just haven't seen yet? And with time, they probably can uh, work, I guess. Right. And and so um, it's interesting. So uh, tokens and TCRs and NFTs, like that whole thing, they're not the end, right? They're like the means to the end. Um, we're like, we're not excited about TCRs because we can't wait to use a list. Like we're excited about TCRs because they allow us to do something more than we've been able to do in the past, right? So um like they're very, very powerful technologies, but but they're just technologies, right? And the thing that we're really excited about right. is application. Like, what do they allow us to do? And um, like decentralized finance, or like finance for people who don't currently have access to the system, um, is an incredibly exciting thing, and it, and it requires these technologies to get there. So the answer, if you wanted, right, is both. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like it doesn't do well like to separate them. Um, do you are there like specific um, projects within DeFi that you've been tracking? So what, what seems to be really, really interesting is that there are all these projects that are like building on-chain services. They're just hosted services um, and, and they're for like little, like, you know, smaller components of a broader like financial system. And then there are going to be all these projects that just use these services like APIs, combine them, present them in a good interface with like customer support and then offer them to users. And that is going to be so exciting um, because, you know, the skeptical view is like no way is like an end user um, 
going to like figure out how to use a wallet just to figure out like how to get a loan. But for sure, as an end user, just going to use like a new company, new product, um, where in the back end, little do they know, um, they're using like services like Maker and Dharma. And that, that seems like really, really awesome. Absolutely. I completely agree. Also, I think especially when it comes to money, like you said, like, you know, we're not dealing with toasters, we're dealing with money. I think this uh, building trust and I think there are two big ways people build trust in financial products. And I think one way is being associated with um, previously trusted financial institutions. So people, you know, trust for the most part in um, in the U.S. trust the banks that they that, that they open their bank accounts with. Um, they already they've been around long enough. They've had you know repeat service with, services with them long enough that they feel confident they can trust them with their money. But I think the second part is familiar packaging. And I think one way is like. Oh, you're using this decentralized service on the back end, but it looks like a product you've already used and are already familiar and trust. So I think that, I mean, outside of being a technological problem, DeFi has a big problem when it comes to, and like the challenge that they have to solve is, you know, how to get these people to trust their money with you. And, um, and this is like open source in its finest, right? Where mm-hmm. a few people, uh, publish open services, and then everyone else can build on top of them. Like, this is so awesome. Um, I, I think a lot about, uh, I really, I really um, like, think, so, so let, okay, just, uh, we're, we're going to tangent a little bit, but, but we'll come back, okay? Go for it. I love this. Yes, stream of consciousness is my favorite. <laughs> so I'm taking a math class this semester at NYU. Um, the, uh, the IDs haven't changed since I went to school, and so I can continue to um, walk into lectures. Um, and as long as I don't arrive early, people think I'm a student. And so, um, and, and the way that the math class works that I'm taking is the professor does a problem on the board, and then he turns around and he asks the class, does anyone have questions, right? Um, and like someone may raise their hand, and the question is always, like 100% of the time, the question is, will this be on the test? And so, this is like really sad, right? No one cares about the math. Everyone just cares about the A. Um, and, and, and this is like- What's that in Hertz law? Um, when you uh, use a monometric becomes a target, it ceases to be a good metric. Ha, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, so this is unfortunate. And yeah, so this is unfortunate. And the reason why it's so shocking is because um, like NYU is like a top 25 university in the US, um, like it's it's outrageously pricey. Like if you're just gonna deploy all your time and capital to a university, you're like, uh, like NYU is kind of like top of the line, right? And so, and this is kind of what you get where like no one actually cares about the substance. No one wants to be there. It's just like, what are, how do I obey orders the best that I can to pass all the rules um, with flying colors? Wow, and so yeah. the reason why this is so, well, there are a lot of reasons why this is important. But, but one of them is because, like, knowledge is important. And this is, like, class is supposed to be a means to, like, compounding on previous knowledge. And knowledge is, like, the reason we have really important technologies like refrigerators and vaccines and subreddits. And so it's really, really important that we can continue to pass down. And so one of the really great mechanisms that we have today for passing down knowledge is, is open source, right? Um, but, but today open source is, like, a little bit broken um, in that it's... Uh, the incentives aren't really there to maintain it. It's like really, really hard to be an open source maintainer. Um, people expect the world of you, but pay you nothing. Um, and, and and so crypto all of a sudden gives us this way to like 
A, uh, someone can build an open source project and host it forever without having to pay anything to do so. Um, and B, uh, they can write into the project that they get like micro fees every time someone uses it and that can sustain them building that project. Um, and, and, and so uh, like one of, one of the exciting things here, like we're talking about open source crypto, is that like this fixes an open source problem. Like this is all about knowledge. This is like, this is about how humans like get better together. Absolutely. No, I love that that perspective on that perspective on open source. Like at the heart of it, what is it? It's yeah, it's our one of the most effective ways to pass pass down knowledge. Um, you know, and uh and I think we're fine and polish our ideas. Switching gears a little bit, I kinda wanna give our listeners more insight into what you're up to outside of crypto. Like we're, you know, humans, we can multitudes and um I not don't spend all our time on crypto. And I think something about Something I love about you is like, in addition to taking, and we've seen this with you taking an additional math class at NYU, even though you've you know since graduated, and is that you're just this eternal learner and the eternal, eternally curious. So on one hand, um, I have this experience taking this math class where it's like just uh, like a little bit mundane. Um, it's a very mundane thing, and no one wants to be there. It's it's like a, a like pretty terrible class. So, and then, and then on the other hand, um, two days ago, I was listening to the most recent Radiolab episode. And what they do in this episode is they take apart this question on physics stack exchange. And the question is so wonderful. It's, the question is, it, like, what if there was a mass that was the size of the earth, but made up of blueberries? Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's an amazing question. Like, <laughs> and, and so, like, well, first they try to figure out, like, well, what is the density of blueberries, right? Because you need to know, like, what is the density of this planet to know how much gravity is going to be on there? Like, what is going to be the experience of being on this blueberry planet? And, like, to know if it, like, how it will rotate around the sun. And then, and then they say, well, okay, well, blueberries are, like, pretty strong, but they're fragile, right? Like, if you rest a water bottle on a blueberry, it will break. And so you have all these blueberries stacked on each other. At some point, they're going to turn to jam. So when do blueberries end and jam begins? Um, and then mm -hmm. they well, there's going to be this, like, a lot of heat is going to be released when the blueberries break, compared um, <laughs> to jam. And so uh, where is that heat going to go? And so what they decide is, like, you know, this planet is going to have these kind of, like, geyser-like effects where there's, like, these blueberry geysers where jam is spitting up because there's not a lot of gravity and <laughs> because there's a lot of heat being released in the core. So, like, that's that's joyful. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> wonderful. And, um, and, and so... Uh, the like it's interesting so are you are you are you creating is your pet are you about to say your pet project this weekend is creating a uh <laughs> earth-sized blueberry mass <laughs> um you know even that's my um but but like you know uh there's a question of like how do you make this like how do you make this stuff more interesting and like more full of joy and so the the project that um continues to i don't know bring me joy is um uh, okay, so I love Quizlet. Like Quizlet is such a great product. Like it's fantastic. And I put a lot of things that I think are interesting and want to remember in Quizlet. Um, but I realized I don't really go back to Quizlet ever. Like I just go there to put stuff in, but I never go there to like read stuff out. Mm. So um, I, I made a, um, like every time I open a new tab, it shows me one of my Quizlet flashcards. And that is so much fun um, because over, over time, I've been putting in like things that I thought were interesting. And now all of a sudden they resurface. And I think like, oh, wow. Like, what wow. So, um, so like next time I open my 
like a browser tab and might tell me like what percentage of Americans ate fast food today or like uh, how often do Americans on average check their phone in any given day Um, or like how many hours did people spend watching Ninja play Twitch in 2018. Um, That's so clever. I love this. I feel like if I ever do a trivia night at a bar, you're going to be like my first choice. So I think like to recap, you are definitely the person I go to if I need to be rescued from an elevator. (laughs) And I think too, definitely the person I would take to, uh, to trivia night, but wow, that's so incredibly clever. So, um, so, so anytime you open your browser, these cards are coming up and like, you're getting like, just kind of like a a hit of knowledge, I guess. (laughs) Sina, I'm so honored that you'd bring me to trivia. Oh, I, yeah, of course. I like you would be such an asset to the team, Danny. Oh, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm glowing. Like uh, I just have never had to compliment. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. When, cool. uh, when I was at Cloudflare, mm-hmm. I was um, so the DNS community is like they're they're so they're so great. They're so there's like a fantastic group of people, and they meet like quarterly around the world um, to talk about the DNS protocol and and who has figured out how to do smaller key sizes and and um, what TLDs still need to implement DNSSEC and what do we think about this like one flag in the DNS like you know packet and and so it's just like really really wonderful and uh, most of most of that at this point is like most of that meeting is governments who are trying to like get a hold on like what is happening in, in the internet and trying to just be there. But there's wow. one day that's just reserved for like techie people and it's called tech day. It happens at every ICANN meeting. And um, there's always one guy, his name is Roy, who uh, does like a, a, a DNS quiz, like DNS trivia at tech day. Um, and it's like for people who are really OG, like they've been there like since the 80s. They were the beta testers of DNS. Um, and and it's like, who remembers what happened then? Like, what was the first thing like, right? Um, and so uh, uh, there was an NFT conference uh, a few weeks ago, and I wanted to pass on the tradition. And so I hosted NFT trivia. Amazing. Oh, wow. I love that. That's a great application. Yep. And uh, how'd it go? Um, we minted the, um, the prizes on chain, so they'll be there forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, oh, it's really easy to mint stuff on chain. So I minted myself on chain. Um, and then um, Alex from OpenSea uh, told me later, like he he did the trivia after the fact, and he scored higher than anyone at the actual event. So we minted him a, an almost prize too. But everything's on chain, um, and that was. Yeah, I love that you mentioned yourself as one does. Like it, that's clearly the natural next step. I love it. And what does minting yourself actually entail? Ah, okay, okay. So Alana talks about this in like a really interesting way. So um, Alana said something to us recently that was like, just so awesome. She said, okay, so, um, and this is Alana Nadalinsky. She's working on a um, privacy focused project at the moment. Um, and uh, she, she's my hero. Um, so she, she said something to us that was really interesting. She said, well, like, if you want to create a token or you want to create, you know, any type of token, it's like 20 minutes of writing code, maybe less. And so these tokens have value and people are paying for them. So what are they really paying for? Because they're not paying for the dev time. Or they're, not, they're not paying for the technology. So what is it? Uh, right. And, and, and I really love that. But also that was very inspiring. It made me think, oh, less than 20 minutes of writing code? I can definitely code for less than 20 minutes. And, <laughs> and so I had to try it. And um, she, she's totally right. Um, at this point, like there are libraries that take care of most of the contract. And then there are uh, like deployment tools that take care of deploying. And so you yourself write maybe seven lines of code um, 
which which is pretty wild. Like to right. create an asset on chain, like to interact with this new technology. Like like it takes you less than twenty minutes to do something that was impossible to do ten years ago. Yeah. That's when you put it that way, that's incredibly wild. So when you say you're minting yourself, what are you actually what are you actually doing? Um uh, what you're doing is you're deploying a contract um, that's on chain uh, that complies with the ERC721 standards, right? So um, mm-hmm. it offers like uh, methods for like transferring or you know, whatever happens in that contract. Um, and <laughs> I, and I just, and then um, it, that contract uh, in, it, in its metadata says it is a, a me um, <laughs> and maps itself. <laughs> You're not like putting your DNA on the blockchain, right? It's like, uh, was it like a GIF of yourself, or like what was the was it like an NFT of you? It was an NFT of me. Um, mm. I would love to have my DNA. Um, <laughs> Although, yeah, you'll live forever <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> that's for sure. Cool. And so on the weekends, you build all these pet projects that I absolutely love. Um, one time you built like. Um, an API for wallets. And then the next weekend you built this like, oh, did Kanye or Elon Musk tweet this? And which is actually pretty tough. I think I got like a 50% on that. Outside of her projects, you also read a ton. And we were discussing books that you've been reading lately. Um, and I think one of them that I was curious about was what is Moonwalking with Einstein about? I think it's, I love the title. It's incredibly provocative, but it hasn't come across my radar yet. And I mean, you've totally seen it in every airport bookstore, you know, across across the U.S., right? Um, so uh, Moonwalking with Einstein is like such a great read. Um, it, it's about um, a memory champion. Um, do you know about man- memory championships? Uh, I actually do not. This sounds really interesting. Uh, so like group of people gather once a year or so um, and, and compete in memory sport. And memory sport is anything from like memorize as many decks of cards like in their order in a row as you can in an hour. And the record is 27 decks of cards in a row. Um, or like uh, people are going to walk uh, in the room. They're going to tell you like their phone number and their name and things about them. And you have to and then you get quizzed like, hey, what was this person's phone number? What was their zip code? Where were they born? Um, and, and so it's this like incredible sport. Um, one, one of the things that they talk about in the book is what is the role of memorization in, in education, like in learning, because we have this idea that like, um, memorization is the opposite of learning, right? Like to, to understand is not to memorize it's, you know, something else, but what they argue in the book is that, um, like information doesn't attach unless they have facts to attach to, right? Like the brain is a web of connection. It's not a web of like spontaneous information. And and so like maybe a good example is uh, someone tries to tell you about like, I don't know, the history of some country and none of it sticks. Like it's interesting, but you don't remember it a few weeks later. And that's because you've never learned anything about the history of that country. You have like no facts to tie it to. But someone right. tells you something about like, I don't know, a token, like a like a blockchain project. And you under you know what blockchain is, and you know what all these other projects are, and so it has semantic meaning for you in the web of things that you already know, and so you're able to know it. And so, in order to learn something, you have to have some things just arbitrarily memorized to to attach new information to. And so, and that was very interesting. It like changed it changed my view of like you know rote memorization, so to say. Absolutely, I think. Um... I, yeah, grew, grew up thinking like, oh, memorization bad means like you're not actually learning what's going on and um, you're kind of like a fraud or something <laughs> if you're just memorizing things. But I like that it's more, it seems like you can't have one without without the other. The other thing they talk about in this book, which I really 
um, I found very interesting is they talk about like um, where, where U.S. public school comes from. And they talk about, well, first there was schooling inside the military. Um, and that was to teach people how to do their military jobs, right? That's like about how do you follow orders? How do you obey? How do you, how do you mm-hmm. like, uh, like have loyalty and allegiance to this thing? And then at some point um, around the same time as the Industrial Revolution, they just ported like this way of schooling to the rest of the U.S. And it made total sense because what you needed to pre- prepare people to do is work in a factory, right? And so there's a question of like, how should schools change since the world has changed so much? Oh, right. Um, do you find yourself like subscribing to the like Lambda school of thought or like here are, we know like we specifically want to, you know, go into this vocation. I'll find a, a way to get that education for free and then kind of enter some t- type of like income sharing agreement where, you know, me paying this back is necessarily like I will have like a job prospect afterwards and we'll be able to pay back that way. Or like, how do you think about when you think about how education should be changed? Are you looking more like the Lambda school of thought or are there other things you're looking at? Lambda is incredibly important. ISAs are important. Um, though uh, I think there's a larger cultural change that needs to happen where today there are two ways essentially to like have a prosperous education company. One is you sell the students who need to like pass their next test and are willing to pay for like classroom, homework, test, help. And the other is you sell to people who want to up-level or just change jobs. Um, and, and then everyone else uh, is, is not spending on education, which is crazy, right? And, and that's because like people don't wake up in the morning and they say like, today I want to learn physics. Like they wake up in the morning and they say like, today I want to feel happy and I want to feel accomplished. And I want to like maybe feel bewildered and laugh at some point today. Um, but wow. I think that learning accomplish all of that. It's just a cultural change that needs to happen. Like the same way that um, physics allows us to answer the blueberry earth question, like um, like that makes you feel happy and accomplished and bewildered to be able to figure out things that you're interested in, right? Um, right. And I think you have to start with little kids. So I think the shift has to be in kids who um, instead of sitting in school or maybe in addition to sitting in school, um, are also encouraged to be curious and follow their passions and figure out like how do I participate in my passions, um, and and then and then that's like a bigger shift that is like I don't know I think pretty revolutionary. Yeah, no, absolutely, I completely agree. I mean, we even see very small snippets of like the material doesn't necessarily have to change a lot, but the way it's positioned or the way the culture thinks about it or what you are saying about that material has to resonate with like a human emotion or feeling. Um, and I, I think, I, I think one thing I read recently was just like this renaming of, I think it was like some Stanford or Berkeley class where the actual title of the class before had been, you know, the history of algorithms and computer science or something that seemed like incredibly dry and dusty when you'd read it, but then they'd rebranded it to like the beauty of algorithms throughout or something that like more fascinating. Right. And then it resonated with more people. They brought in a lot more of a diverse class, more people, they had more signups because that spoke to a different type of audience and it, and it resonated with something that was like more universal and really struck people on a different chord. Like everybody can find some beauty, like whether it's like in music or art or, and I think it just humanized computers more. And I love this because it's just like culture change, like nothing about the class change, just um, quite literally the title of the course, that's all you changed. And all of a sudden you saw, you know, more signups and different types of signups. So completely agree. Another book you had mentioned was, uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And, 
Uh, I haven't read that, but I am like 10 or 20% of the way through of Quantum Man, which is also about Richard Feynman. And what I found really funny and kind of surprising in that book is just how much attention he put towards curating his public persona. Like obviously incredibly smart man and able to process, internally process and distill what he knows and present it to people in a digestible way. But I didn't realize how careful he was about curating, you know, what, what exactly he let people know about himself. And um, I was curious if you came across any like fun or quirky things in uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. So the reason why it's so interesting that you say that the reason why I started reading this book is because I was curious um, uh, how, how do people with morally ambiguous jobs uh, justify their jobs to themselves? And like, I, I understand that, uh, I mean, uh, every job is more like you can, you can find ethical mysteries in, in all of this, right? But, but that seemed really interesting. And he seemed like a great example of that, where, you know, one of the technologies that he worked on was the atomic bomb, right? That's like a mass murdering engine. And so there's a question of like, well, how does he justify this to himself? And so I read the book with the aim of finding that out. And the answer is, well, he just doesn't talk about it. Like he talks about all the way up until the bomb was deployed and then, and then basically nothing, right? He just skips over it. Um, and I don't know if that he doesn't know how to reckon with it or he doesn't want to associate with himself with it. And I don't know. Um, the, the, the other effect that the book had on me is this is the reason why I'm taking math. <laughs> I, uh, he's such a curious person um, and he goes into these tangents about like random things that he observes in the world. And some of them were just inaccessible to me. Like I did not understand them. And I thought, well, I probably have to take physics. Um, but in order to take physics, you need a little bit of calculus, which I don't know. And so, um, so, so this was a pretty monumental book in that it changed, um, changed what I decided to do with my time. Uh, I don't know. Wow. No, that's wonderful. I think, I think that's probably one of, the best compliments uh, an author or like writer, you know, could receive is that you quite literally change how a person thinks about where they spend their time. Yeah. Speaking of spending your time, you also have another, I think, amazing interest, which is actually one of the ways I knew about you before I actually met you is I would have, I would see a lot of my friends um, in San Francisco had like these gorgeous photos like on their like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And it was always like CC or like pick credit, Danny Grant. <laughs> and, and I finally met you. I was like, you are the photographer <laughs> that is taking pictures of all these people and they're gorgeous and they're beautiful. And then I learned you were, ac you actually shoot for uh, New York Fashion Week too, which I think is incredibly interesting. So I'm curious, when did you start photography and, and how did you end up shooting for New York Fashion Week? So you're so sweet. Um, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, I went through a period of time when, when I started. So in, in college, I would like change my major every semester because, um, you know, why choose when you can be undecided? Um, and, uh, and towards the end, I, um, I did, I thought, wow, like computers are really interesting. Let's, let's do that. And um, wh when that, um, and I did kind of like an identity shift each time I would uh, change my major, like, I would have a new shift of, I am a person who does X, right? I'm a person who's interested in Y. Um, like it was a totally shift in how I was like explaining myself to me. Wow. And so one of the identity shifts um, that like I was making in my head when I was shifting to computers, technology, um, was that I no longer wanted to be known as a person who's in arts, right? Like I wanted to be known as a person who is like, you know, I don't know, like computer-y. And so um, I stopped doing photography at that time and like, just I, like 
wanted to be clear in my identity. Like, you know, I, I'm a geeky uh, person. I don't do arts. Um, I mean, I'm con- I continue to be geeky. Like, that's my whole life. Like, I, um, like, you know, I came out of the womb playing a Rubik's cube, right? So, um, but I, but, but that was like very interesting, and it, it took me a while to figure out, like, oh, I, I, I can have this hobby that feels frivolous um, with without like losing integrity. So, um, oh, but, but okay. So the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing about doing photography as an outsider. So uh, I, I photograph um, this one designer's fashion week shows twice a year. And every time I go, I have the same observation where the photographers there hate each other. Like they all feel, they're all operating in scarcity. There aren't enough jobs for all of them. And so they're super, super competitive with each other. And they're outwardly mean to each other. And it's, it's mm-hmm. wild. You think this is a creative industry. People are like collaborative. Um, but it's really quite sad um, to, to see how people are trying to shut each other out um, to gain for themselves. Um, and, and I think, and one of my takeaways every time is I feel very uh, fortunate to uh, be in an industry where it is continuing to grow and we feel like there's more and more opportunity for everyone. Um, right? Like, like crypto is full of hope. Technology is full of hope. Like, um, uh, you know, uh, like we are full of hope. Um, and, and, and that feels really powerful. Wow. I love that so much. And I still am curious about how you ended up shooting for uh, New York Fashion Week, though. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, well, when I started college, I thought this would be my life, right? Like, I thought I would be in, like, I thought I'd be a fashion photographer. And I, um, I had all these uh, internships that were, like, very short, but, um, like, in this domain. Like, one of my jobs in college was to dress the, um, the models at Alexander Wang. And I would get instructions, like, you know, find something evening but not too evening and i don't know how to do that so <laughs> oh god um, and then um and and i had like brief stint working at um the the magazine allure um mm. and they would give me instructions like go get the and then insert designer name here and i again i don't know how to do that so um so that did not last long um, but, but at the time I was, I just, uh, I was reaching out to anyone who was doing a, a fashion week show to ask if I could, um, photograph them. And, um, and so I've been photographing, um, this one designer show for many years. And, and the, the really fun thing about it is you get to see culture change, right? Like, um, you know, s- since I've started photographing her shows, she's added plus size models. She's added um, men, men like men in her clothing. Um, the idea being, this is not women's wear. This is just everyone's wear. Um, like I'm going to take male models and I'm going to put them on the runway wearing these outfits that I've designed. Um, and, and so it's fascinating to see culture change. Like not like the tech, like the clothes haven't changed. Like you know, right? It's just taste. It's culture. Um, and that's just the way it's presented. Absolutely. I think there's any like one running eternal theme that's just like the way you present or position something it has is, is I, I truly think is almost everything. So much. So like an interesting stat here is like um, last year, um, female artists spent 18 weeks on top 100 billboard. Right. Um, but the year before they spent only eight weeks and nothing really changed. Right. Like it wasn't that they were producing more music or that their music was suddenly better or that there were more, like the only thing that changed was taste. Um, perception of the thing changed. And that, that's like, and it had a, a, like a noticeable effect. And I think that's very interesting. Absolutely. And I think that like ultimately makes me more hopeful about crypto in that like a lot of what we're building is only getting better. And a lot of the, like at its core, we're like, okay, here is a decentralized way. It's censorship resistant. It gives you power back. 
And I think we just need the taste to match up or like the actual uh, narrative to match up with what the product is. And we're seeing the winds change. And I think that's that'd be, that's like a great note to, to end on. But we're running up on the hour. And I want to say thank you so much for joining us, Danny. This was incredibly enlightening. Um, Soon I listen to so many podcasts, you know, like some people when when they watch like Good Morning America, they see themselves like behind the window waving to the TV cameras and they have this moment. of, (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm on the other side of the screen. So I'm having a moment now of like, oh, my God, I'm on the other side of the podcast. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.